Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. We are recording today at Podcast Day in London, the podcasting conference organised by Radio Days Europe. We'll update you on all the big themes from today's sessions, plus the change in Google's algorithm that left Mail Online with half as many site visits, the ongoing struggle for YouTube to maintain order, and in the Media Quiz, we play Regulation for the Nation. It's all to come in today's Media Podcasts. And joining us today for the first time on the New Look Media podcast, but he was on the Guardian's media talk when the old king died, it's James Cridland, radio futurologist and editor of Pod News. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful to be here. And of course, welcome back to the UK because you live in Australia these days. Uh, I do, indeed. So brilliant. I'm really looking forward to talking about the media industry for a country that I don't live in anymore. <laughs> it's going to be great. We're global. We are a global player. Yes. But not like global player, which not is an capital app. G. Uh, also joining us, Steve Ackerman, MD of something else, regular voice on the show. Hello Ollie, lovely Welcome. to be back. Uh, what big themes have come out of sessions so far and how long will it take you to talk about the Brights? Uh, no, I'm not going to mention the Brights. <laughs> you should. No, so no been- I refuse to mention the Brights or David Tennant. Um, <laughs> uh, themes, I think I think search and some of the stuff Google are up to has been really interesting. Uh, the BBC has been talking about how they're trying to make, you know, bring together lots of different technologies that different types of broadcasters are using. That's been really interesting in terms of how, how you make podcasting a regular or an easier part of the broadcasting landscape. And I think just creative innovation. There's, 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 there's been some wonderful examples here today of just podcasts that are in many different ways are innovating brilliantly. And James, you do actually, even though you're not in the UK that often, spend your life going around the world going to conferences like this one. Yes. I've actually never been to a podcast conference. Do you know that? I've been to loads of radio-ish conferences. Well, there we are. Um, including your one, Next Radio, yes. which is sort of about radio, but social media and podcasting yes. as well. Yes. But is this typical of the podcast events that you go to? I mean, there's a lot of people here. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different podcast events, and I think what, what's interesting at this one is that it feels quite corporate, it feels quite grown up. Um, you go to some of them, so Podcast Movement, which is a great conference which happens in August, that's fascinating because you, you end up with essentially three different conferences going on at the same time. So you have the passion podcasters who are learning, you know, how to use music in intros and things like that. And then you have upstairs, you have some complicated, you know, advertising technology conversations. And then if you look really carefully, there's a load of really scared radio executives who are there <laughs> going, oh, it's all a strange world. And so you get this sort of interesting mix. And I think, you know, what's been nice at Podcast Day is that it's been a very much more inclusive 
conference with all of that kind of thing in it. I think what you know, one of the things I took away was the chap from NPR was talking about their Up First podcast, which is a uh, daily news uh, podcast, and saying how different the audience is for that than for Morning Edition, which is the, the, the radio show it comes from, and actually how it talks to a completely different audience, completely different age group, 40% of whom have never heard Morning Edition on the radio. And I think, you know, really interesting seeing how radio and podcasting work together in that. And also that kind of level of business and corporateness, Steve, it's no longer something that people necessarily have to feel isolated from, even if they are a passion podcaster. I mean, you run in an indie, something else, you now have, in a way you didn't have 10 years ago, a range of options to take these podcasts too. There's Audible, there's the BBC, uh, you know, there's Spotify, you could self-produce it, you could put it on Acast and get ads from it. I mean, there are a million ways now to get your audio out there. It's an incredibly exciting time, and I think it's not just about getting audio out there. For me, the, the key thing, I think, for, for my bigger podcasters or someone who, who maybe by chance develops something that becomes a hit is that for the first time really, I think, in the audio world, we've got a global marketplace in the same way that the TV world does. And really for the first time, IP has a value. And that's really, really exciting as audio producers because back in the day, there were, you know, that just didn't really exist. And there's no doubt about it now. If you've got an idea, you can obviously monetize that as the podcast, but clearly you can also um, make money by optioning that into TV or doing live shows or all the other ways possible as well and I think that's incredibly exciting it is it is really like the wild west in you know in the audio world at the moment in a way that I've never seen before in my career and do you think James actually as the market matures a bit some of the attitudes around advertising might mature as well I mean I'm careful what I say here because I advertise beer on one of my podcasts there's no regulation around that there's no regulation about the way you talk about drugs if you talk about them on a podcast that was sort of more acceptable when it was smaller amounts of money being passed between clients. But this is now going to be a big industry. Yeah, I think it's going to be a big industry and also a big industry, which is a global industry with a small g, which actually therefore means that there are lots of different rules that you have to follow across the world. One of the conversations which uh, appears probably every three or four days in Facebook groups is how much music can I use in a podcast? Uh, and the answer is zero, of course. Yeah. Um, but lots of people start talking about, you know, fair use. Well, we have no such thing. Uh, we have a thing in the UK called fair dealing. They have fair dealing in Australia, but it's different and there are different rules and so on and so forth. So actually, there's all of this mire of regulation um, and lots of different laws all over the place. And I think that's something that podcasting, which frankly is a very, uh, possibly the only global, truly global media, is going to have to you know, deal with, I think. And one of the big uh, sort of podcasting crossing into other media stories to come out of the conference today, Steve, is the news that Brexit cast is going to be on telly in the this week slot, the slot after question time. Yes. Is that a good idea? Well, I think as someone who is obviously very passionate about podcasting and whose business is obviously investing heavily in podcasting, uh, I think it's fantastic because we've still got, you know, 80 or percent of the population who don't listen to podcasts. And so by creating a TV show that is a podcast and is very much putting the podcast at the center of the TV show, they're not trying to, you know, now turn it into a TV show. They still want the podcast to be front, front and center. That's a fantastic thing because it's all about raising awareness of, of, of podcasting. Will it work? I mean, that's really f for them to answer. From what, I, from what I saw in one of the sessions where they showed an early pilot that, that they'd done, they, they truly are looking to maintain the spirit of the, of the podcast. And in effect, it's a well-informed 
um, conversation, informal conversation by people who really know their stuff and who have great chemistry between them and that's what they're looking to maintain. And I thought actually when they announced that, I thought what a breath of fresh air that when you're looking for a politics show replacement on the BBC and when you particularly bear in mind the show it's replacing which has been there for years and years and years with Andrew Neil's toupee, how wonderful that they should look to podcasting as, as the idea that they latch upon. Yes, although all of the people in Brexit cast are on the 10 o'clock news every night. I mean, it is just basically them, but picking their nose, isn't it? Well, no, I, I think that's a bit unfair because they are on the 10 o'clock news. I mean, the show's great, no, the podcast no, but, is great, but, but on I mean telly, is, won't it just be the same but longer and informal? No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, it will be informal, and that's the beauty of it. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, for those who obviously aren't here today, what they were saying was the producer of the podcast is the exec producer of the TV show, and the team were very insistent that he should be the person creatively leading it. They've built... Uh, they built it technically in terms of uh, vision mixing and stuff so that actually he doesn't necessarily need to make those decisions it, it, a lot of it's automated which again you think is a much more like a sort of a radio studio or you know I know when we, you know when we do filming um, when we have the cameras going for Kermode and Mayo you know that that automated system where it initiates on the voice it's very interesting because it means they're not looking to bring in a TV producer to turn this into a TV show it does seem that they are looking to film a podcast and I think there is a difference in that and will the podcast episode, you know, be the one that you've just seen on the telly the next day? I don't know. You better ask someone involved in Brexit cast. But. Interesting to see what they do with that. Um, right. But some other big news about podcasting, although it wasn't announced here at Podcast Day, is that the Obamas have signed a deal to produce podcasts for Spotify. Tell us about that, James. Yeah, they have. And I think, you know, it's interesting. Spotify are doing a lot of exclusive deals at the moment. And clearly they want a lot of great content to go into Spotify so that you have to use uh, Spotify, you know, to have a listen. But I think actually, you know, it's, it, it's very interesting just sort of taking a step back and looking at what Spotify are doing because they are beating Apple in many countries in the world, partially because Spotify is obviously available on Android phones as well as on Apple phones. Uh, is which, Apple Podcasts not on Android phones too, though? No, it and not? it's weird. One of the things that I think that Apple should be doing, I have helpfully given Apple my thoughts, and one of those uh, things is, you know, build a Apple Podcasts app for Android. You already have an Apple Music app for yeah. Android. Why not build an Apple Podcasts? The other thing, by the way, is enable a subscription model because you've got all of the tech and it should be really easy for you. But, you know, so Spotify have done that. Only last week they also enabled uh, embedded players that work on websites and work on social media and stuff like that. And I suspect that this is the reason why all of a sudden we've seen Apple wake up from a deep, deep slumber and Apple are now caring about podcasting again redoing categories. Apple's now available on the web and has got a nice, beautiful player. Apple are reworking how the, the Mac experience of a podcast will work, searching through transcripts, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I suspect that we wouldn't have seen that if Spotify weren't now heavily breathing down their neck. And this Obama's show, or Obama-produced network of shows, we don't actually know what they're going to be, do we? No, we don't. No. And... It seems to have echoes of the deal that obviously the Obamas announced with Netflix. Yeah. And in that sense, how wonderfully exciting, again, that we're talking about podcasting and we're talking about one of the most famous influential couples in the world who set up their own production company and yet are looking to produce podcasts as much as they're looking to produce high-end TV shows. And I thought the other interesting thing about the announcement, I'm, I'm pretty sure within the quotes and everything, was a comment about one of the things they're really looking to do with their podcasts is widen out the range of voices that are heard and I know that that's a, a big part of Spotify's mission as well they're very very keen to, to tap into more diverse voices um, and so in that sense you know who better to try and enable that than the Obamas who are an incredible couple 
And it's interesting, I think, you know, there, there, there's a, a media commentator in the US, Doug Erickson, who asked the question, why isn't commercial radio doing this? Why isn't the radio industry going, okay, you would like to produce some fantastic content, we are here for you. Was it because commercial radio thought that people wouldn't be interested? Was it because nobody thought about it? Whatever it is, it's probably not saying very positive things about the commercial radio industry in the US. So I think there's an interesting side you know, to that. I suppose the difference is on radio, you do respond to the voice speaking to you directly when you happen to turn it on. And if it isn't literally Barack and Michelle, if it's someone they're inspired by who they've commissioned to do a thing... It's easy on a podcast, isn't it? Self-selectingly, the audience who might be of a liberal left persuasion who want their mind opened will find that content. But if you're flicking through Absolute Radio and it's not Barack Obama, it's someone else, are you going to listen? That is true to to a degree, though you might argue that something like the Chris Evans deal runs counter to that because they're someone that a radio station has poached because they want to you know, bring audiences in. I think that's a really interesting question, uh, what, what James through Eric has just, has just raised. And yeah. I, think, I think it shows two things. First of all, the, the, the sorts of audiences. I mean, you know, we know that the really aggressive audience growth on podcasting is amongst the younger demographics. And, um, I, and therefore, I think this move speaks to, to that in terms of trying to reach younger voices. But the other thing is it does reflect something about the ambition of, of radio. And, you know, I think sadly, um, for a long time, lots of uh, radio, whether it's public service or commercial radio, has sometimes lacked ambition in a way that I think we're seeing quite aggressively in lots of fronts on the podcast front at the moment. Okay, we're going to move on from podcasting, but I'm I'm sure it'll come back (laughs) because all three of us have a vested interest and we are at podcast day. Uh, But let's talk about online traffic now and visits to the Mail Online site from Google searches have dropped by half after the search engine changed its algorithm at the start of June. Now, James, Google say they weren't trying deliberately to uh, divert people away from Mail Online. It's just happened because they changed their algorithm. Well, what a shame. If you look at what the Mail Online does, it's a reprehensible company. You I mean, I should interrupt you now, but I'll let you rant. Go. You, you, Don't <laughs> mix your words here, James. Don't hold back in any way at all. You look at what Mail Online does. What it basically does is it sits there. It, it steals stories from everybody else, rewrites them ever so slightly... Uh, and sticks them out on their own website. Um, and uh, you see, I, I, I can hear the Daily Mail van is coming to <laughs> take me away. Um, so that they can actually gain some grubby advertising money out of that and their, and their sidebar of shame. It's a, it's a horrible, grubby company. And I, and what but Google, it does employ hundreds of British journalists, doesn't it? They may be copying other people's stories, but they then do have to check their sources and, and, and they then and, are trained and, and qualified and, and paid. And journalists, in inverted commas, in, in Australia as well, or, you know copy typists. Um, Yes, absolutely. But on the other hand, Google has always penalised you for copying other people's content. Do you think that's what's happening? That is a standard thing that Google has done. When you look at some of the stuff that that Mail Online has done, apart from, you know, ruining people's lives and all of that stuff, then actually, you know, I I have no no concern about this at all. Good on on Google. There are journalistically inferior sites to Mail Online that are getting the clicks from Google. I mean, I think about the eye, you know, you may not have objections to the eye politically like you might about Mail Online, but often their journalism isn't as rigorous and yet it's at the top of Google rankings. Yeah, and my understanding around this story, and this really isn't my, my area, so I'm only going on what I've read, is that, well, certainly publicly, Google and the Mail are both sort of saying they don't actually quite know what's happened here and that Google yeah. had been saying, 
you know, the same pattern of behaviour hadn't happened to other news sites, maybe like the Eye or other or other sites. Yeah, the so, Sun has seen a boost, apparently. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're both a bit baffled as to actually what's happened here, yeah. aside from the fact that they have lost huge amounts of traffic, and, and James may well be pleased about that, but from a <laughs> from a media podcast perspective, in terms of trying to just understand what's going on, it, it sounds like no one actually really knows at the current point in time. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that somebody is going to talk about machine learning or artificial intelligence anytime soon. But I think, actually, what, what some of the systems that Google have in place, nobody really quite knows why it pushes certain pieces of content up and why it pulls pieces of, pieces of uh, content down. And, they've, and, and they have issues with some of the podcasting things that they're doing as well, and they've got issues with various other things. And I think it's just it's difficult to produce rules that will make a search engine work that don't sometimes work in weird ways. And, and perhaps that's what we're actually seeing, much to my glee, obviously, but perhaps that's what we're actually seeing. Well, the Mail have come out with a statement, haven't they, essentially saying, oh, it's not going to affect us too much. It's going to affect people searching for news stories, obviously, but a lot of our traffic anyway comes from our own native app and all this kind of thing. It does seem to sort of underline the wisdom of media companies finding ways for their, their customers, their readers, to connect with them directly rather than through search engines at all. Yes, and I think that was maybe one of the key things, as you say, to emerge from the story, that it it just reiterates that obviously for anyone uh, publishing any form of content, as much as you can, you want to be in control of that content for this exact reason, particularly when monetization issues are are involved, um, yeah. you know, and, and because we, we we know the history of what's gone on with the newspaper industry and the online world, um, but there's lessons obviously to be drawn for other forms of media out of that as well, podcasting included, I think. Okay, telly now, and after Channel 4's announcement to set up new offices in Leeds and Bristol, some departments there are expecting up to 90% of staff will request redundancy. That's according to The Guardian. Uh, is that bad news for Channel 4, Steve? I mean, they're losing a lot of staff potentially, but I guess the opportunity to regenerate regionally, which is the point of this exercise. It, exactly that, I think. I think this is one of those stories that it, it creates quite a nice headline, but when you really look beneath it, my understanding is when the BBC moved to Salford, I think the stats were pretty similar. It's not really that much of a surprise in terms of lots of people obviously live in families where there's two wage earners or where your kids are at school. And, and so the idea of you know, upping sticks uh, when you haven't necessarily planned to may not be appealing. And ultimately, what this is about is is the same as it was for the BBC moving to Salford. It's not about lock stock, everybody packing up and moving up to another city. As you just mentioned, it really is about trying to um, uh, use the creative industries to um, to help employment and help uh, form creative hubs in other parts of the country. And actually, you could argue the BBC moving to Salford, that has happened. You know, you go to Salford now and obviously ITV are there and lots of other companies are there and, and most people working there live within the locality. You know, the, the BBC's got past the point where its management were commuting up and down and all that sort of thing. So I don't think this is, this is that surprising. It's a headache for Channel 4 because that's a lot of recruitment they've got to do, but I'm sure they would have anticipated this. And it's, I mean, I guess this is the same question that we were asking on the show when the BBC did move the staff up to Salford just with a smaller amount but if you were spending that 50 million quid and trying to increase diversity on Channel 4 would it be better to give it to regionally based indies or put a new building in Leeds? Well I think you know when uh, I've lived in Australia for the last uh, three years and so I have the benefit I guess of looking into the UK as a uh, as a sort of semi foreigner and when you look into the UK's media industry it is fascinatingly centralized on London in a way that actually really doesn't happen in many other countries. So Australia, the media industry is split between Melbourne and Sydney and a bit of Brisbane. 
Uh, not enough of Brisbane, sadly, but still there we are. Um, when you look at France, you know, it's split all over the country. When you look at um, Germany, again, it's split all over the country. You know, the US, you know, I mean, CNN comes from Atlanta, for heaven's sake, you know. So, so you have this sort of, you know, large mix, whereas the UK specifically, it's still so London-centric and London-focused. I think it's a bad thing, but also bad if you sort of take it a little bit wider in that London is essentially a different country. And I think the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland actually has England, Wales, Scotland and London because we vote differently here in London. Um, we think differently of uh, Europe uh, here. We have a very different views to the rest of England. And I think that's a real concern for where the future, where the future of this country is going, Ollie. Okay. I think that's a yes, I would spend £50 million on a building. Um, <laughs> uh, some of the people in London as well, Steve, watch uh, Channel 4 News, uh, and they've revealed 9% fewer audiences watching their flagship show at 7pm every night. Channel 4 say that's because of Brexit fatigue. Sounds like an excuse, doesn't it? I mean, you know, LBC's audiences are up, aren't they? People well, are listening to BBC News. Why not Channel 4? I can only tell you personally, as someone who was a politics student at uni and is fascinated about politics... Even I'm feeling a bit tired and weary with everything that's that's going on. And I would have thought I'd be the last person to, to sort of say that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the reasoning behind that. I mean, potentially Channel Four News maybe suffers from the fact that it's obviously in an earlier slot as well. Never really been in the most favourable slot for a big news show. But uh, I do think we're also in a bit of a cycle where obviously it's not an election year as far as we know yet, or, or we're not in an election cycle. Brexit's taken a bit of a pause and really did get to that climactic moment where everyone felt a little bit knocked about, I think, because it was, it was just getting so vitriolic. And so maybe in that sense, it's, it's a reflection of that. Maybe it's just people picking their commentators, you know, as we were talking about earlier with Brexit cast. There are now a cast of people people want to hear their Brexit news yes. from, and, and sadly that doesn't include Jon Snow and Christian Gurumurthy. Yes, I mean, it may be. And I, and I think, you know, again, it's interesting having moved to Australia where all of the big news uh, shows are between six and half past seven. Uh, and that's it. And then if you want to watch news after half past seven at night, tough, because there isn't any. Unless you tune into Sky News, which is a very different beast. That's because uh, nothing ever happens there. in Australia, isn't it? Um, well, you know, you could, you could say that, um, you know, apart from all those police raids. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting that in the UK, we have a culture of news at 10, you know. Well, the US does as well, though, doesn't it? Yeah. The US does as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's always been a traditional slot in terms of a break between a, the later night shows and the, and the big entertainment show of the evening. I suppose it's just as well that because we've got these flagship programmes today on Radio 4 and the News at 10 on BBC and ITV and those are heritage brands that aren't going anywhere, what's happened is the bit in the middle is where people now go to Twitter, isn't it, for that fluid, up-to-date news. You don't need that kind of mid-period updates, do you? Well, I th but I think with Channel 4, it's always been a bit more of the sort of thinking person's news, hasn't it? The reports are a little bit longer. They tend to pick up some subject matter and some news stories that maybe the other news outlets don't follow as much. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll delve into an issue to a greater degree. They've obviously got a lot more time to play with. The show is longer. Um, Can I say something else as well, right? This is just as a, as a Channel 4 news viewer myself, because I love that show... I have noticed, and I haven't heard anyone say this in a public forum because it's not a nice thing to say, but I think Jon Snow is too old. I actually think he's losing it a bit. I watch the shows and he forgets what he's saying, he mumbles his lines, and it does get to the point where it's getting a bit embarrassing now, and I've not heard anyone articulate that, but as a viewer of the show, it is a bit embarrassing Sorry, which, to watch. Which, which uh, John was this, Jon Snow or Jon Humphreys? <laughs> 
Finally, on uh, Channel 4, they have renegotiated their terms of trade with the Pact Alliance, which represents independent production companies. Uh, tell us what that means. Well, my understanding on this is... OK, so for those who don't know, Pact, as you say, is the umbrella body, basically, that represents pretty much every TV independent producer and a a very significant body. So in the way TV has evolved over the past 20 years or so, and and as you know, the British market has been a really big player in terms of the the, the growth of the global TV market and growth of formats. Pact has been very, very influential within that in terms of negotiating rights for the producers. So that's a bit of background. In terms of this deal, my understanding is, the sort of simple headline of it is that Channel 4 have agreed to give up... um, Uh, the automatic right to some of the international revenues that might be generated by a TV show produced by an independent producer for Channel 4 in exchange for greater flexibility with the rights they might have over on-demand viewing. So their ability to place shows obviously on 4OD or on YouTube or on other places. And I mean, that's obviously a really interesting thing because they've clearly thought long and hard about that. And it, it clearly says something that they maybe feel about the state of the TV market and where it's heading and the importance of on-demand rights, obviously in a world that's full of Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and BritBox whenever it launches and all that sort of thing, as opposed to the old model for TV producers of going out and selling your format and seeing, especially on repeatable formats, seeing returning revenues or selling it to 130 countries and all that sort of thing. That exchange is clearly a fairly significant one in that, in that sense. I guess that is the question for all commissioners at all of the what used to be called terrestrial broadcasters, isn't it? Why would an indie come to us with a knockout idea and a great cast rather than Amazon and Netflix? You have to give them a reason. Yes, and I think Roger Mosey said something very similar about this a couple of months or so ago, um, saying that actually large broadcasters are less interesting than going to Netflix and going to some of these other organisations um, because of the carve-ups of the, you know, of the IP that you actually that you actually take uh, there. So I think, yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting time I think in media where the the opportunities that a large broadcaster gives you are now actually rather less than the opportunities that you can get on some of the on-demand services. Okay, we'll be back with some more media talk after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Congratulations to lucky media podcast listener Reese, who entered our competition to win a much-coveted ticket to podcast day. He is here somewhere, uh, soaking up the insights and reveling in the gossip that comes from squeezing the leading lights of the media industry into one building. And you too can keep abreast of all that's happening in the media world by listening to the media podcast. Well done. You're doing that now. And between shows, by following us on Twitter. We are at The Media Podcast. And if you enjoy the show, I have two favours to ask. One, please tell your friends to go to podfollow.com slash the media podcast and hit subscribe in their podcast app of choice. And two, if you'd like to support the show, please go to themediapodcast.com slash donate to help keep us on the air. James and Steve are still with me here at the Radio Days Europe podcast day at King's Place and time for some media news in brief now. Uh, YouTube have been accused of exploiting LGBT creators and ignoring homophobia on their platform. Uh, James, this was after the Vox creator, Carlos Maza, a gay man, has been trying to get the right-wing YouTuber Steven Crowder banned by accusing him of orchestrating a hate campaign against him and sharing clips of him using homophobic language against him. So there was a lot of pressure on them to remove Crowder's content, but they didn't. Yeah, I think it's really difficult here in terms of taking people's content off a platform. And I think that YouTube, um, if YouTube do nothing, then they'll get shouted out. And if YouTube take stuff off, then they'll get shouted out. It reminds me of the conversation around Patreon uh, at the end of last year, where Patreon, which is a way of funding uh, you know, creative things like podcasts and other things, what they did is they, they pulled uh, a number of far-right you know, activists off their service, which resulted in not people saying, well done, Patreon, for getting rid of some of this hate speech. It resulted in people actually doing the reverse and saying, how dare you censor people, even though I don't agree with them, how dare you censor them? So I think you know, it's, it's a very difficult, very difficult balancing act to work out what you take off, what you leave on. But I really feel for anybody that actually has to sit and work out a policy, because there are no rights or wrongs here, I think. Well, uh, Carlos Maza's point, Steve, was that YouTube don't just kind of impartially sit back and allow anything on their platform. They do make editorial decisions. Whilst simultaneously trying to embrace the LGBTQ community, you know, there's a YouTube pride march and stuff. And here they are allowing someone who's selling T-shirts. I can't remember exactly what the T-shirt said, but it was an offensive slogan that was homophobic as part of this story and say, well, that's freedom of speech. They seem hypocritical. I think it does feel very uncomfortable. I, I mean, I do agree with James. It's very difficult on lots of these issues because obviously the line is constantly shifting. But I did look at the content from this guy. The guy was being abusive. And, you know, there's no doubt about it. He was... Uh, he felt a bit like the playground bully who sort of says jokey stuff with a smile, but it felt a little... Well, not a little bit. It felt very taunting of the, the guy from Vox who's complained and I really thought hard about how do I feel about that that how comfortable does it make me you know I'm Jewish how would I feel if 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 I take out those comments and put in gentle anti-semitic comments I think when you think about it in those contexts or you try and put yourself into the picture whatever you're you know whatever someone might say about you 
I think it's very hard not to have an emotional reaction, which is there has to be a responsibility here to, to a degree. And, you know, in a world where, unfortunately, often things are getting quite vitriolic, there is a responsibility to help us mm. ensure that we have a civil society. But then <laughs> what should YouTube do? I mean, should they pull out of these pride events? Because I guess they'd say, wouldn't they, well, these are the brand values of our company, but another brand value is freedom of speech, so we can do both things simultaneously. I think it's just so, so difficult. And, and this is the absolutely fine, let's not have videos which are way too loud, or let's not have videos where the red colour doesn't work. Because you can, you can easily choose that in terms of a technical uh, plan. Yes, this video does not work, we will take it off. But as soon as you start talking about what you can say, what you can't say, how you say it, whether or not it's said sarcastically or in jest, it just becomes really difficult. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, one test, and this maybe goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier uh, around regulation for podcasting. One test is obviously as a guide to say, well, in a broadcast environment, what would be permissible? And by broadcast, I mean terrestrial broadcast. And, and obviously in the UK, that would mean under Ofcom. And clearly when you're online, exactly the same as for podcasters, you are not within an Ofcom regulatory environment. But that might be one test to say, well, if it would be acceptable on a terrestrial platform, is it acceptable just because someone's viewing it online in their own time? And I think, often that can be a really good guide as to whether this is really something you should feel comfortable with or not. Mm. There's also an amazing story in the New York Times, I don't know if either of you saw this, about videos of children playing in swimming pools being referred on to people who had just watched softcore pornography and how the algorithms on YouTube nudge their viewers into watching younger and younger people if they start looking for pornography and then eventually on to perfectly innocent videos that have been recontextualized by YouTube's algorithm as satisfying a particular paedophilic gaze. I mean, that just seems completely like there'd be no disagreement about the fact that that shouldn't be happening, and yet it is what happens when you allow algorithms to run things without check. It is an algorithm which has clearly gone wrong in this particular case. It is clearly doing something that the algorithm should not be doing, or, I mean, arguably it's working as designed, but it, it, but it clearly shouldn't be working in that way. You, you, you know, so I think, I think, you know, again, it's algorithms not necessarily working in the way that we would expect and that's again a difficult, a difficult I think, job. I think the other thing it just it reflects and just reiterates once again both from a, a regulatory perspective and obviously from a tax perspective just how out of step most Western democracies legislation and legislators are mm. with the modern world and with the way people are consuming content now and frankly if you're YouTube, you are a law unto yourself, and you should be, because no one is, is enforcing anything on you. And yeah. if you're a big, gigantic corporation, actually, you know, if no one's really forcing regulation on you, then the decisions are left, are left to you. And that's where we start to get into this very grey area of what's right and what's wrong. OK, on to the BBC now. And the BBC must do more to help older people, according to the Culture Secretary, Jeremy Wright. Uh, after the government, of course, made it the corporation's responsibility to decide whether people over 75 should still get free TV licences, and they decided, James, that they shouldn't. Yes. Could the BBC have actually decided anything else? I think it was 750 million quid it was going to cost them a year. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I think it's amazing until now that the TV licence has been free to people who can afford to pay it. Um, so now where the cut-off point is, I don't know. 
but I think it's very strange that you would give that away to rich people. And so, you know, you've got that sort of side to it. But yeah, I think the BBC had their hands tied. It would have led to significant cuts of, you know, entire channels, entire uh, stations. And I think the BBC, again, it's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't things. I mean, a lot of the debate inevitably, Steve, is focused around people, you know, in the comment sections basically saying, oh, Gary Lineker gets paid too much. But I mean, this isn't one or two Gary Linekers, is it? This is the entire budget of BBC Two and BBC Radio, for example. Well, exactly that. And actually, the I mean, I think James has just given the polite answer. I think the blunt answer is how outrageous of conservative politicians in the middle of a conservative leadership election to be openly attacking the BBC when this was something they foisted upon the BBC in the full knowledge that it was going to get to this crunch point, that the BBC were going to have to make this decision because it was something the government were avoiding and didn't want to make because they knew that politically this was going to be really, really difficult. And sure enough, you then, of course, have the Mail and the Sun and the Telegraph lining up behind them. And yes, I saw a letter in the Evening Standard last night from someone complaining that, well, if Gary Lineker's paid 1.75 million, you know, why the hell am I having to pay for my licence? I mean, just such a ridiculous argument. You know, I feel very, very sorry for the BBC on this. I'm very angry about it because it is those exact politicians who put the BBC in this position. But not Conservative politicians who made the original decision to cut TV licences for the over 75s. That was Gordon Brown. Well, that may be. Arguably never should have happened in the first place because it was always going to at some point be unaffordable. That may be so. But equally, I do agree also with James that we are in a world where I don't think it's unreasonable that if you can afford it, you should pay for the licence fee. And I, you know, my parents are in their 70s. They have no problem with this. So, should Gordon Brown's announcement 20 years ago actually have been, we're going to means test the licence fee rather than him getting an easy headline of, we're going to make it free for older people? Probably, but 20 years ago is a a long time away in terms of the media and, and, and everything that's happened since. Ain't it just? Yeah, I mean, you you know, I think it's important that, yes, people who can afford to pay for it should be paying for it. But obviously, if you are on pension credit, you will still get a free TV licence. And I think, you know, that that, that's quite right and important to bear in mind. Right. Let's talk about Disney, NBC, Universal and Warner Media, who have just joined Netflix in threatening to boycott Georgia, the entire state of Georgia, if their abortion ban takes effect. So this is withdrawing the filming of programmes in Georgia as a result of, I guess, what the state of Georgia would call a political decision. Is is that a sensible idea, Steve? Well, I think as a private business, you have a right to take your business wherever you so choose and to spend your money in whichever way you so choose. And even though this, obviously in America, we know it's a very loaded subject and this will be construed as a political move, and maybe it is, at the end of the day, Disney and those other businesses are quite entitled to say, we don't feel comfortable filming in this place anymore. And, you know, they have all cited their staff. They've said one of the key reasons is they know that the sentiment amongst their staff is that they would not be happy working in a place where they have such strict abortion laws. I mean, it's such and a litigious country, I and mean, it's actually perfectly plausible, isn't it, that a woman working, making a new show for Amazon that takes a year to film might become pregnant, it passed six weeks of fetal development, which is the new cut-off point, and not even realise they're pregnant, and then be trapped in Georgia because that's where they're working, could actually lead to a lawsuit, I suppose. Well, again, lawmakers have to understand that decisions have consequences and nothing speaks louder in America than money. And in that sense, I actually applaud these companies. I think they've, they've exercised, in effect, their democratic right to choose to go and take their business elsewhere. But James, lots of production companies have been filming in Northern Ireland for years for similar reasons, tax cuts, and they make it beneficial to film there. And they have pretty restrictive rules on abortion too. So 
you know, is this something live, we should see the BBC saying? I live in a state where, until very, very recently in Australia, it was illegal to have an abortion. So, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, if you are a commercial company, I think it's entirely up to you to spend your money where you, where you, and how you want to spend it. And I think that's absolutely fair. Well, you can hear the. Uh crowds, the thronging crowds, have come up to our gallery level here at King's Place for their free coffee, and we certainly don't want to miss that. So I'm just going to squeeze in our media quiz. We're calling this instalment Regulation for the Nation. I'm going to ask you three questions about everyone's favourite regulator, Ofcom. You just have to give me the answer before your opponent does. It's easy, you just buzz in with your name when you know the answer, James. So James, you will say... James. <laughs> and Steve, you will say... It's his first time. He's very confused about this. Steve. <laughs> Didn't used to do this kind of thing at The Guardian. Uh, right, ready? Let's go. What will homeowners have a legal right to come March of next year thanks to an Ofcom ruling? Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. James. Uh, fast internet, I'm going to guess. Correct. High-speed broadband uh, or a universal broadband service. Every home in the UK will have the legal right to request access to broadband that delivers download speeds of at least 10 Mbps, benefiting around 620,000 homes and offices in some of the most remote locations in the country. I mean, it's good, isn't it, to see them doing something about that, because there are still patches of the UK where you cannot get an internet signal. Crucial, and obviously sitting behind it, is um, any uh, country that wants to be economically successful has to have this uh, element of, of infrastructure. OK, here's Ofcom question number two. How long will BBC programmes stay on iPlayer if approval is granted? Oh, Steve. Steve. I think it's a year. It is a year. Uh, Ofcom has given provisional approval for BBC programmes to stay on iPlayer for up to a year. It's back to our earlier conversation, isn't it, James? I mean, again, that's maybe a reason to make your show with the BBC now, if, that, if they pull that off. Yes, indeed. There's lots of conversations going on around... Whenever you look on the internet, you see people saying... Why can't I watch every show that the BBC has ever made on iPlayer? Well, it doesn't work that way, but I think actually for them to be able to put, you know, a year's worth of uh, shows on there is really exciting. OK, it's the tie break. Cling on to that jet lag, James. You can nearly get your coffee. Yes. Here is Ofcom question number three. Is it that obvious? Where will departing head of Ofcom Sharon White Steve. go when she leaves the regulator Steve. next year? Steve. Steve, Steve, Steve. John Lewis. It is correct. Wow. Yes. Sharon White will be going to the John Lewis partnership uh, taking over from Charlie Mayfield as chairman, sparking speculation as to who will replace her as chief executive at Ofcom. Do you want to play that game? I mean, that's nerdy anorak stuff, isn't it? Any Not ideas? really. Not really. No. I mean, I suppose they could be just as creative as John Lewis were about finding their next chairperson think, or chief executive. I think it should be Michael Gove. <laughs> well, Sharon White obviously came from a non-media background and, yeah. and has clearly been a very successful appointment. Uh, which means that you are the winner this week, Steve. This might well be done, the Steve. first time in a long time I've won the quiz. So. Well, that is it today. My thanks to Steve Ackerman and to James Cridland. If you like what we're up to here at The Media Podcast and you want to help us keep doing it, do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. You can head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can also catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.